Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, our Helsinki correspondent pays a visit to Flow Festival. One thing that sets Flow apart is that it really is for everybody. You have the Flow veterans, who've been to every single Flow since 2004 and still get into the groove despite not being in what some would say is the festival-going age anymore. I'm one of them, so I can say that. Plus, we'll report from Copenhagen's Fashion Week. The mood was incredible. I think it was one of the most optimistic, mood-boosting fashion weeks I have been to in a very long time. And that translated into the clothes as well. It was just an amazing place to be. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a highlight from The Urbanist. Five months after Russian forces invaded the country, we traveled to Ukraine to listen to the stories of its people and witness a nation that truly embodies the word resilience. In part one of this special report on The Urbanist, we look at local government, Bush's proximity to the capital placed straight on Russia's warpath when tanks rode in the direction of Kyiv from the north. When we visit, the scars are still visible. Monaco's Carlota Rebelo reports from Ukraine. I am Helena Skorek-Skarivska. I am the deputy mayor here in Bucha. You could call me Mika. It's, uh, in fact, officially it's the end of my day because we walk from 8 to 5 p.m. It's uh, 30 minutes past five, but I think it's the earliest when I'm going out, <laughs> thanks to you, <laughs> almost in time. And the idea is that we will go around uh, the Bucha city and you will see how green and nice it is. We we'll visit the church, unfortunately, at the place of tragedy, where we had mass grave and all the bodies are exhumated, but they are not identified yet. Not all are identified and after that we will go to the park and we will see our for me best corner of Bucha the lake and the park which was under the attack from the first days because it's very close to uh, Antonov cargo airport where Putin was trying to drop off the troops so you will see the peaceful life but at the same time for the locals it's all the places are marked by the war and by the occupation and by the invasion. So your job day to day is to go through that and try to uh, write a part, part of it. We are in cooperation with the relatives trying to find uh, those who were not identified yet. We have uh, like dozens of not identified at the moment. It's 119 body bags and we are talking about 116 bodies. Do you mind if I ask how you feel about looking at those images every day? Uh, for me it's a job and uh, somebody has to do it uh, that's like my duty and also that's my service for the local families because i have a dream i want to identify everybody i want to create the list full list of those who were killed not only in bucha but in bucha district in total in all communities every person should have her or his own name my car is in the in the yard. So that's the main street. 
Energetic Street, where uh, the Bucha City Council on the right, the local hospital on the left, and straight there there is the church, uh, where we had this mass grave. And the story is that Russians, when they controlled Bucha in uh, the middle of um, March, didn't allow to bury people in the proper way because cemeteries on the right and on the left. But they said, okay, if you bury the bodies of those who were killed or died in the hospital here near the church, let's go and have a look in brief. at the church you will see the holes uh, that when Russian entered Bucha they shot just straight into the building by heavy weapon and also by from the automatic gun just for fun of course some of them we removed and we repaired the windows and uh, small destroyment but you could see was anyone inside uh, when they were shooting at the uh, building? No, because this church, this this is upper church, it was not operating. So the priest was here till the day where that grave were made. And after that, he was evacuated uh, via Green Corridor. And uh, right now, is the church back to yeah. being open to people? Yes, the priest Andrew opened it in April. Uh, just after the liberation and we even had a very good Easter ceremony here near the church, around the church. And there, far there, that's the place of the mass grave. Now it's just the grass but and the cross. But three months ago, that was the place of tragedy where the police and the investigation teams were exhuming body by body. And now that's the place where official delegation are coming almost every day, sometimes several delegations per day. And you see that's the place where we have candles, flowers in the remembrance of those who were killed, who were murdered for nothing on the territory of Bucha and Bucha community. kept this car just for the fishing before the war. But now when my colleague criticizing me, I'm explaining, look, it's ideal war car. Don't worry. It's good. It's it's reliable. Yeah. We call it like Koltek because it's called Mitsubishi Colt, so we call it Koltek. Koltek, it's like my security. <laughs> Keeps you safe and takes you everywhere. Yes. My security guy. <laughs> So tell me about the park we're going to now. Um, in fact, Bucha is very green and it was a middle-class suburb before the war and the city of young families. Uh, the biggest problem we had before that was uh, not enough classes in schools, not enough kindergartens for the young families. And now uh, when I came to Bucha for the first time after the liberation, I saw like empty streets, almost no cars and no kids at all and when we saw like three years old girl for the first time um, her 
grandfather asked not to give her sweets because every adult was trying to give sweets to the oh you don't see the destroyment so we will not stop because it's covered and it's under the reconstruction now there's a lot of rebuilding already going on we counted that almost 3000 buildings were destroyed and we have the analysis that uh, 2,000 from them could be repaired fast, like in months, two months or three months' time, if we have enough people to work, material to repair and money to do that. And we are trying to do this fast repairing um, as quick as possible in order to be prepared for the very hard winter. And uh, so we are started from uh, small destroyment and we are planning to move to the heavily destroyed places afterwards. It's very important to finish this as much as possible before the wet period, otherwise after the winter the situation will become worse than it is. But you see that like city is active, its kids are playing football on the left. We have uh, cafes and restaurants, lots of them are operating. So now it's like normal life, not like it was in April when we had no electricity, no mobile connection, no gas, no water, nothing. Just like minus five or plus eight without heating inside the houses, very cold. So we are happy that which is recovering so fast. We are turning right. This is the road to the park and it was empty for the first time when I was driving here, but now you see even the park is operating like it usually during the summertime. Of course, we will see less people than usual, but you could see a nice lake where I could swim on the right. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. A year ago, in such a day, it would be very hard to drive through, but now it's not like this, but life is coming back. And now to the world of print. A circulation of 8,000 might not sound like much, but in a country of just 2 million people, that's a significant reach. And all the more impressive considering the publication in question specializes in architecture and urbanism. Outsider is a big hit in its native Slovenia. And far from being a niche concern, it's available at petrol stations around the country and on newsstands, including Outsider's own in the capital, Ljubljana. Monaco's man there, Guy Deloni, met the magazine's founders, Nina and Mateus Granda. Actually, the initial idea was not only about Slovenia. Uh, first issues of Outsider were also made in German, because at first we thought about wider public even, because we thought that this idea about architecture, culture and people can really speak to everybody almost, not only Slovenians. But there is, I think, a nice idea to always start from a specific, uh, more focused point, and then to speak to wider public, and this is why outsider. So from a point of view of distance, to tell a story to wider public. 
We are both architects, and uh, there are many magazines about architecture, and uh, the readers are usually meant to be only architects. So this is uh, also our starting point. We uh, we see a discussion about space that we live in, uh, very important not only for architects but for all people, um, because if we are aware of our uh, space and quality of it, we can change it in a positive way. Uh, so this was our also our initial idea to make a magazine which is not only for architects, it is architectural magazine, but uh, for everyone. So, What's the development of the magazine looked like over those seven years? When we started at first, it was a publication uh, a, which comes out four times per year and this is still the main focus that we uh, do, so Outsider magazine. But we also um, started with uh, online publication, which is devoted to dynamically writing about architecture and about space in general. Yeah, we, we like this hybrid um, printed text, which uh, needs more um, longer writing, deeper um, thinking, and daily respond about problems on web pages. So the, these two poles were uh, from the beginning the the hybrid of Outsider magazine. But later we had uh, many other things as uh, competitions, um, yeah. other publications, um, kiosk, uh, and a lot of projects that we started and running with Outsider. Yeah, after a printed magazine and online also magazine, we started doing competitions. And this competition brought the need to organize like a festival of ideas connected with renovating. And so we started organizing also festivals which are devoted to architecture and how can we integrate architecture to enrich our lives and to bring something uh, special, interesting, funny and worth talking about. So this is a really cool thing. It's a hybrid in lots of ways. You've got the magazine, you've got the website, which has the interactive element, and also you've got the interactive element directly with the festivals that you do, the events that you do. But let's talk about the magazine a bit as well first, the actual physical object of the magazine. You've made it extremely specific in the way that you've put together outside. I mean, giving it a good old... There we go. A good old thumb there. The paper even is quite specific, isn't it? We are architects and we like physical things. Uh, and so uh, we wanted to make an, also an object of desire. And when we were selecting a paper, we contacted uh, some Slovenian producers' fabrics of uh, paper and we found one uh, close to Ljubljana with really long tradition and they they're doing this paper which is a bit yellowish a warm color and usually it's it, it is used for books not for magazines and 
what what was uh, observation of our readers is that it's very easy to read uh, from this paper. Uh, it has warm color. It's easy. It's comfortable for eyes. But actually, at the beginning, this paper was not really. Um, people didn't know it, and designers didn't like it too much at the beginning. This was good for us because it was cheap and we could afford it at the beginning where we had nothing, only good idea and we were crazy enough to follow it. But somehow this paper works really, really good with Outsider magazine. And what happened was that now so many designers use this paper. Everybody knows it and everybody loves it. So our company is... Um, very satisfied with this collaboration that we have because yeah um, somehow something that was known as second class trash is now super hip and everybody wants it and this is something that happens along the way with outsider on so many levels you said that from the off you wanted outside to make architecture accessible to everyone, that it wasn't just going to be something for architects. And Outsider is extremely accessible. You can buy it in every petrol station in Slovenia, and it has a circulation of 8,000, which when I scaled it up to the size of the UK, that would mean a circulation of somewhere approaching 300,000 copies per issue. So this is a magazine with a lot of reach. How did that happen? Uh, that was the second comment when we started the magazine, who will read it? There is no public for such content in Slovenia. And we said, okay, uh, we, we'll, we'll do the good content. And if uh, no one will read it, we will stop uh, printing it. And then we find out that uh, a lot of people are searching for a good quality texts and uh, content. And... There wasn't any, so uh, there was a place for outsider. And the first step also when we started the magazine was to visit the distributing company and make a meeting with them. Uh, and uh, from the start, we established a large network of uh, distribution on the petrol station, on hypermarkets. Uh, so it was very important from the beginning to be accessible on the most places uh, where people usually buy magazines or newspapers. And also at the beginning we didn't know that the majority of uh, cultural magazines and architectural magazines also are actually financed by some kind of government fundings. We didn't know about that actually and we just thought, okay, we will try and if people will read it then we will see it really has a purpose and meaning and it would be worth working hard and having fun besides on working it. So it will make a point then. So there wasn't really any other options for us. I still kind of believe that if you make a magazine or then it's a good thing if somebody reads what you have to say.
You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24. We highlight now an interview that Andrew Muller did with former BBC New York correspondent Nick Bryant. The book is called When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. Andrew Muller began by asking how deep he thinks Donald Trump's legal troubles are this time around. Oh, look, he is in a lot of legal jeopardy, that's for sure. I don't think the Attorney General Merrick Garland would have signed off on FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago, his Floridian mansion, if it wasn't really serious and there was the possibility of a prosecution in the offing. And of course, we've had the overwhelming evidence of his insurrectionary criminality, if you like, ahead of January the 6th, the storming of the Capitol in the January the 6th hearings. They, like a trial really, have laid out the case against Donald Trump. And I think it is compelling. I've always been one of these people who thought that the the risks of prosecuting Donald Trump outweighed the benefits because of the fear of making him a martyr, because of the fear of the violent potentialities of his supporters. The conservative wing in America, uh, the conservative movement in America now has a paramilitary wing. And that really worried me. But, you know, given the overwhelming amount of evidence that is being presented at the moment, what other choice is there? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that a serious country like America can actually be cowed and surrender to the threat of violence. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln used to speak about the religion, the political religion of America should be upholding the constitution of the law. And I, I suspect that's a pretty good credo to live by in this moment. It does seem especially weird, I guess, that a nation as great and as powerful as the United States has led itself so far astray uh, following this fairly preposterous looking figure. And the, the book starts with you meeting, interviewing Donald Trump in 2014. And you, you do make the point that as recently as that, the idea of him even running for president seemed like a bad joke. But if you go back to that point, what sense did you get of what was driving him? Did he appear to have any particular ambition? or was it just about staying in the news? Andrew, we met nine months before he came down that golden escalator, that portal into a very different political world and a very difficult, uh, different America. Uh, the subject of a presidential run didn't even come up. I was there to talk about his casinos in Atlantic City. I think the idea at that stage of a presidential run for Donald Trump, which he'd muted so many times before, seemed risible to me, certainly. And I think it seemed a little bit outlandish to him as well. I suspect he was slightly surprised by how well he did early on. And of course, he just had this immediate visceral connection with so many people who saw in Donald Trump and heard in Donald Trump the things that they had been wanting to say for years, but didn't feel they could voice. He was a candidate who was saying all those things at the top of his voice. The book starts further back than Trump. You're trying to make the point that he doesn't emerge from a clear blue sky, that he's a, a culmination of something rather than an aberration. And, and you start in 19, 1980, 1984 with, with Ronald Reagan. And I know you have to start somewhere, but is that when you think the rot really starts? Or does this go back still further to Senator McCarthy, to the John Birch Society, all the way back to the know-nothings? The, the United States has always had this tendency, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, division is its default setting. And you can go back to the foundation of the American Republic in 1776. I started in the mid 80s because that was the first time I went to America. It was 1984. It was on the eve of the Los Angeles Olympics. It was this extraordinary summer of American resurgence. They won every single gold medal, it seemed, in this modern day gold rush. 
And Ronald Reagan perfectly captured the mood of the nation when he ran for re-election that year with the slogan, it's morning again in America. And I really wanted to try and make sense of that America that I sort of loved and fell in love with in 84, it's morning again in America, and the American carnage that I heard Donald Trump speak about in his inaugural address. And I was still about 50 yards from him when he said these words, and they were just shocking and so dystopian. I wanted to make sense of that shift. And and like you say, I mean, the argument of the book, the thesis of the book is that Trump wasn't an aberration. He wasn't a historical accident. He was the culmination of political, economic, cultural, technological, racial forces and trend lines that have been emerging for decades. But where in particular do you fit Reagan on that trajectory? Because he does now, and your book does make this point, occupy a very strange place in Republican mythology in that he's venerated, almost worshipped. And yet if the Ronald Reagan of 1980 or somebody with exactly those convictions was to appear now, the current Republican Party would ride him out of town on a rail and, and damn him as some sort of snivelling, lily-livered communist. Yeah, there's so much romanticism around Ronald Reagan, who raised taxes. He brought about an immigration bill that the modern-day Republican Party would reject. He worked in a bipartisan way with the Democrats, again, in a way that you can't imagine the modern-day Republican Party doing. He actually appointed to the Supreme Court. His first appointee was a woman who supported Roe versus Wade. Again, unthinkable in the modern era. But I do regard him as a godfather of polarization. He was one of those conservatives who really turned the American people against government after the New Deal of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Government was pretty popular. People thought it offered them a safe a social safety net. They they thought that government did good things. Ronald Reagan really changed the thinking around that. And I think a lot of the anti-government rhetoric has ended up becoming sort of anti-democracy rhetoric, which is deeply worrying. I did want to ask about the reception to your book in the United States, where it has already appeared and indeed has been seen in the Oval Office. What kind of response have you had? Because if there is one thing that I have noticed in my own travels among Americans of all political persuasions, it's they tend to bristle a bit at being criticised by not Americans. I think there's been a bit of a, a sort of divide uh, in between you know red states and blue states when it comes to the book. I mean, critically, thankfully, it's it's received a lovely reception when I've gone on television shows like Morning Joe. A lot of the people who frankly know a lot more about American politics than I do seem to agree with the thesis. And I think it was actually because Biden may have been listening to me on Morning Joe once this this really important political show that airs early in the morning on MSNBC. I think that's what got him interested in the book. And it, it is actually in the Oval Office at the moment. And I'm hoping he'll read it because it seems to be on the shelf for about the last 12 months and I'm not <laughs> sure he's actually opened it. But I think the key point to make about the book is it's a love letter. I'm not mm. anti-American. There are many times earlier in my life when I would have happily taken up US citizenship. When I first went there as a teenager, when I was reporting there after 9-11, I felt 9-11 very personally because I loved America so much. And it's a love letter that really becomes a lament. It breaks my heart that I thought we should, and my family did too, that we should leave America and come and live in Australia because we had an American daughter and it was almost as if we wanted to protect our American daughter from the land of her birth.
Let's talk about music now. Music festivals at their best play an important role in fostering a sense of community and belonging in cities. Helsinki's Flow Festival, now in its 17th edition, is an urban music and arts festival that brings the city together in a summer-ending ritual that is important for the city's identity. We dispatched our correspondent in the Finnish capital, Petri Burtsov, to find out what makes Flow so popular and what the future holds for the festival. With queues stretching hundreds of meters around the city blocks of the Finnish capital Helsinki, Flow Festival was back with a vengeance. Over three days, nearly 100,000 visitors were treated to a well-curated collection of music, arts and culinary experiences in the Suvilahti area, a former gasworks on the city's eastern coast. Launched in 2004, Flow has grown into one of the country's best-known events. Taking place in mid-August each year, it is to many Finns a ritual that marks the end of the summer. It is where the locals meet their friends after the long summer holidays and have fun together one last time before returning to work. Flow has always been a distinctly urban festival and as such of great importance to the identity and the sense of community in Helsinki. I spoke with one of the city's best-known urban activists, Arto Sivonen, to find out more. It's been guiding like a lot of different kind of actions going to the right direction. I think it's been guiding also like how we build different kind of festivals. Festivals can be nowadays more, I mean, it can feel good. You can eat good food there. It can look nice. You can have fun. People are not too drunk. I mean, people can even behave a bit better than somewhere else. As the first festival night was drawing to a close, I recounted my experience so far. In just a few hours, I had listened to a drumming group from Uganda, the Norwegian pop sensation Sigrid, Africa's hottest act Burna Boy, Brazilian DJs and much more. And that was just the music. I had also tasted food from a Michelin chef, checked out art installations with a glass of Riesling in hand and listened to a talk about the importance of culture by Finland's key government ministers. And that was just the first day. I was having a blast, but what about the other festival goers? It was time to head into the crowd and ask. So my name is Kira Schoberg and I um, have been go coming to Flow Festival initially in there 2008. I was working here with arts, visual arts. Flow has since the beginning been uh, a festival where cultural side of life has been taken into account uh, or arts aren't seen as just music or just uh, food or just visual arts but it's a combination of uh, all the senses. One thing that sets Flow apart is that it really is for everybody. You have the Flow veterans who've been to every single Flow since 2004 and still get into the groove despite not being in what some would say is the festival going age anymore. I'm one of them so I can say that. You have the jazz aficionados, the disco crowd, the Instagrammers who look like they've mistaken Flow for Burning Man. You even have entire families here as Sunday kicks off with the kids' disco. And yes, the Prime Minister was here, as you just heard. Everyone mingles and everyone gets along. I saw a mosh pit with a wine cooler in the middle. That really says it all. To underscore just how important the festival is to the city's urban identity, this year Antilopi, one of the city's biggest real estate developers, decided to sponsor the event. I caught up with their CEO, Tuomas Sahi, and asked him why. Flow is all about human interaction. It's 
more than just a music festival. It's urban city festival here in Helsinki and we are the biggest property owner here in the eastern downtown of Helsinki and uh, especially now after COVID it's very very important that people interact, they meet together, they leave homes, they go out to town. Flow has been that type of a festival for years. It connects people all around Helsinki and abroad, different generations, so it's not a festival only for a certain music genre or certain age groups. When you think about festival food, it is not exactly a mouth-watering prospect. Greasy and stale chips, anyone? Not at Flow. Here visitors get to enjoy food from 40 restaurants and drinks from over 20 bars. How does Filipino fried calamari sound? Grilled portobello mushrooms, salmon okonomiyaki, or perhaps tart of fromage or bouillabaisse. This was just some of the food on offer. In fact, many of Helsinki's most loved chefs and restaurateurs can be found serving food at Flow. I caught up with one of them, Anders Vestaholm, the man behind Story, Sushi Bar and Wine, and Van Van restaurants. I asked Andas who he brought with him and what he was serving this year. We uh, just decided that we're gonna gather like the best bunch of the craziest uh, or the craziest bunch that we have working with us and we come here with something totally different and <laughs> this year it, it is a sourdough pizza dog. So it's kind of like sourdough pizza meeting a hot dog and their love baby. And I, I've had two different kinds and they are lovely, I must say. The following day after curing my hangover with a glass of sparkling, yes, Flo has a champagne bar, I met the festival's founder and artistic director Tuomas Kallio. As everyone seems to love this festival so much, I started off with the obvious question. What is your secret? Two things basically, it's, it's, it's the mindset that we want to create things, not just follow leads or, or charts or whatnot. So we kind of believe that what we think is, is uh, relevant and interesting and, and nice is similar to kind of similar minded people. And that's the basic principle. So we do it for ourselves, not, not to a random faceless target group. We like to think this as a bit of like an arts festival in, in a way. Ever since the festival's founding, at Odysseus train depot that the city then tore down for offices and a grand music hall, Flo's fate has been hanging in the air. For a festival that is so loved by so many, it is curious that the city has not found a permanent home for it. The disused gasworks, where Flo has been held since 2007, might be bulldozed and turned into apartments. There are not many outdoor locations in the city for a festival that attracts 100,000 visitors, and it is still unclear if and where Flo is allowed to stay in the city. Tuomas Kallio explains. Nobody knows, I mean, there's no vision for this area as a whole, still after all these years, none. And that's the main problem. If you ask from five different Helsinki City officials what's going to happen with this area, you get five different answers. And then, you know, there's this... Um, council term and then when it expires and then the next one comes in then things are different again the mayor is new it's you know all that so all in all it's a mess it's it's a messy situation but could be that we are not here but also I mean might as well be that we are here in in five years time we have a, a solid base now we, we are not just independent business anymore so so flow will go on somewhere for for good I mean that's 
that's for certain now. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And for Toast Stories this week, Maya Ramfer visits the banks of the Rhine in Basel to explore a once bustling industrial area that has been claimed by both the public and developers alike. Basel might be best known for its cultural scene. Museums and institutions offer a rich program from ballet and opera to cutting-edge modern art exhibitions. Art Basel draws in leading art galleries annually, and buildings by Herzog and Damont adorn every other corner of the city. Located in the northwest corner of Switzerland, Basel might also be associated with the Rhine. Carving its way through the romantic old neighbourhoods, the river is not only used by cargo ships, but swimming locals. Once temperatures reach 20 degrees, hundreds of Basler jump into the Rhine to make their way along the riverbanks. Floating on top of inflatable, colourful clothing bags, they transform the river into a speckled rainbow pattern every summer. Also connected to the Rhine, but less present in the public awareness, is the pharmaceutical dominance of the city. Basel has a long industrial history. To this day, life science giants like Roche and Novartis are headquartered along the riverside. Quite naturally, considering the trading power of the 1,230-kilometre-long river, the Rhine ports used to be much frequented, fueling the local chemical companies in the northern tip of the city. It was there, in the Klebeck area, that chemical companies like BASF and Novartis produced medicine and colour dyes. For more than 100 years, the Klebeck generated the city's wealth in the form of chemical compounds. It was only recently that companies moved away, leaving the industrial Klebeck abandoned and deserted. But it didn't take long for travellers to arrive in their caravans, where they set up small eateries. Similarly, the Basler youth claimed the area as its meeting spot, and bars and clubs opened their venues taking advantage of the remote location. The factory pipes crippled, the smoke now mainly comes from the disposable barbecues bought for family reunions, and from cigarettes of young people sitting on the concrete piers until the wee hours of the morning. With the sound of industrial production gone, the Klebeck of today offers a broad soundscape including samba from the large Brazilian communities, adolescent laughter and the consistent bass blasting from the techno ships moored on the river banks. Within months, the industrial void was filled with life and diversity. But, as with any urban neighbourhood in overpopulated Central Europe, city developers were quick to see expansion potential. Plans were drawn up to transform the Klebeck into a brand new hip neighbourhood. The interim use that the Klebeck is now under is only supposed to last until 2024. After that, the area of around 300,000 square kilometres is to house 20,000 inhabitants and create 30,000 jobs. It was also soon enough that quarrels emerged around the Klebeck's future. 
local communities raised initiatives to be more involved in the transformation of their homes and voiced concerns around sustainability, affordability and, most importantly, health and safety. A report published in 2019 accused both the government and chemical companies of a lazy clean-up job. When the chemical industry left the area, there were no efforts to search for toxic residues and there were no plans for decontamination prior to building the shiny new neighbourhood of tomorrow. The city's chemical wealth left unwanted traces. A cocktail of 2,000 types of contaminants is potentially hiding away in the neighbourhood's groundwater. Basel scores high in terms of quality of life, and with its prime location in the city, the Klebeck is an urban goldmine. If that potential is to be harnessed without undermining the neighbourhood's livability, developers will have to work with both, a consideration of the area's industrial past and an appreciation of the cultural richness that has grown organically, entirely without a bulldozer. And continuing our Euro trip, Monaco's fashion editor Natalie Teodosi discusses the more accessible approach on show at this year's Copenhagen Fashion Week. It was an amazing week, as you saw as well, with the sun out, with everyone swimming in the harbour. The mood was incredible. I think it was one of the most optimistic, mood-boosting fashion weeks I have been to in a very long time. And that translated into the clothes as well. The Danes really took advantage of the city and uh, chose outdoors venues. So it was just an amazing place to be. Tell me about those outdoor venues. That sounds sensational. I mean, that almost is exactly what you want in summer when you're you're going to something like this. Copenhagen designers do that extremely well. It helps sort of democratise Fashion Week in a way because when you choose this outdoor public venues, people can look from outside, passersby can peek in and see what's going on. It's not as closed off and exclusive as Fashion Weeks and fashion shows are usually known for. One example would be uh, the Woodwood Show that uh, is a Danish brand celebrating its 20th anniversary and they actually closed off a bridge by the harbour and uh, just as the sun was setting, presented their collection. So we were sat on the bridge to see the shows, but people on the boats, people from nearby offices could also just uh, take in the view and then see what's going on, get a taste of Fashion Week. I mean, that sounds sensational and I am a huge Woodwood fan, so I'm, I'm very, very very jealous of you there. I mean, a question I did want to ask you, and I guess certainly my focus tends to be architecture and landscape architecture and furniture design. But for people that may be less into fashion, why is this sort of event important? And why is making it accessible to them, you know, whether they can see it from the bridge or from the water or from a building important? I think especially uh, with Copenhagen Fashion Week, because there's a certain pragmatism and the clothes that you see on the catwalks are usually clothes that you can wear and they will make it onto the shop floors. It's also clothes with what the Danes call honest price points, which means that the markups are not huge. It's more accessible prices and still good clothes that are well made that me and you could buy if we saved up a little bit. I think it's interesting following Copenhagen Fashion Week just to see interesting clothes you can eventually shop for. And on top of that, you get to experience beautiful venues and and storytelling when you get to look at the, the show itself. So if you're in Copenhagen, you could 
would catch a show on a square or on a bridge, or you can look at it online. And I think that storytelling is that's a, that's a really nice word because I mean certainly I feel like that's what we're trying to do when we even pick out our own wardrobes in the morning. Like you're, you're trying to tell a story about who you are. So seeing how brands do that for themselves, I imagine, is incredibly exciting and inspiring. Exactly. You get to just peek into the world of these really creative, really interesting brands and see not just the fashion that they create, but also all the different uh, forms of inspiration that, that form those worlds from music to sometimes it can be design and architecture, depending on the venues that they chose. Another example of that is uh, the Sunflower Show, which is a young menswear brand in Copenhagen who invited people to their office to show uh, the clothes very casually and they had a concert at the same time with uh, one of their friends singing from the top floor from the window and you could just have a listen, have a look at the clothes and chat to the designers. And, and this cozy, relaxed atmosphere is very typical of Copenhagen Fashion Week and it makes everything so much better and so much more enjoyable. I mean, it sounds like they're really breaking the mould of what a Fashion Week can be. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of this actual event. Do you see it challenging the likes of like Paris and, and Milan and, and London? Is it pushing its way up there into perhaps one of the most significant fashion and, and design events on, on the calendar? A hundred percent. I think a lot of cities are trying to do that to get on the on the map. But Copenhagen Fashion Week has actually made incredible progress. It started with a few names like Gani or Stinegoya, who are now household names, putting Copenhagen Fashion Week on the map for a very casual, optimistic, colourful look. But the city has kept evolving. Now the menswear offer, for example, has, has really broadened a lot of talent in, in that sector as well and, and a lot of younger creatives offering lots of different styles. And the other point of difference is their approach to sustainability, which is incredible to watch. They really care about not making waste, making things much more responsibly, investing in material innovation. And also the CEO of Copenhagen Fashion Week, Cecilia Thorsmark, has set up this uh, set of sustainable requirements. So by next year, if you don't fulfill those requirements, you cannot participate in Copenhagen Fashion Week. And that's really setting the bar really high. And Paris, Milan, London have been looking at her plan and, and trying to emulate Look, that feels like a perfect place to end and setting us up nicely, not only for the next Copenhagen Fashion Week, but, but other fashion weeks looking to it for inspiration. And now highlights from Monaco Reads. Charles Artis is a writer, journalist and speaker who has been reporting on science and technology for more than 30 years. He speaks to Georgina Godwin about his latest book, Social Warming. It is an insightful and important exploration of the pervasive effects of social media on politics and society, and a call for us to pay attention to the world's most compelling addiction. Social warming. The shape of the problem is what you examine in your prologue. And you say you, you make the comparison to global warming. Tell us why. Well, global warming is one of these things where everyone contributes in just a very small way. We're all burning fossil fuels. We're all doing things which have this very small and yet cumulative effect, which has uh, a globe-spanning huge, uh, very hard to turn back effect, one where it's very difficult to give up burning fossil fuels. You know, we all like having cars that we drive to the supermarket. And even when we drive our car to the supermarket, we think, well, I'm not really making things worse. I might mean, it's only a very little trip, even though it is. 
And the scale of the problem is very hard to imagine when you're just looking at it down at the individual level. You have to look at it at a much higher level to really grasp what is happening. And I mean, obviously, we, we're becoming rather more aware of that. With social warming, and the reason why I made the, the, the analogy, I guess, in, in naming it, again, it's the sort of thing where at the very individual level, you think, well, me having a little Twitter spat, that's not making much difference. And, you know, if my, if my uncle is posting racist things on Facebook, okay, but you know, that's just a little, you know, that's a bit stupid and it'll probably get moderated. But no one really pays attention, do they? But my point is that all these are little cumulative things which all increase the friction in society, which make us bump up against each other, which make us a bit more angry with each other, which make us a bit more apt to be uh, separated into tribes who are warring tribes over whatever subject it is, because you can always find a subject on which you disagree. So everyone gets a bit angrier, even at the same time as you have the convenience of all the information that you're getting from all the social networks that you're able to access more than you ever could. At the same time as all that is true, you're also bumping into more people with whom you disagree. And that is what I describe as social warming. It's this tendency for everyone to get even more annoyed. And it can spill over into real world effects, which is the more important thing, I think. Mm. Now, as I said at the top, you've been covering this technology for, for 30 years. Did you ever, right at the beginning, think it could become as huge and as all pervasive as it is now? When the smartphone really started to come around, when Apple uh, introduced the iPhone, it seemed, I mean, it's always a problem. All these things are just incremental. You never quite get the, no one says, oh, this is going to be absolutely gigantic and therefore. Uh, so when, when Apple introduced the iPhone, it seemed like they were going to be a niche player because there were really big companies like Nokia, which dominated the smartphone, well, the smartphone space as it was then, but they dominated mobile phones. And people couldn't quite conceive that you'd move to this world where rather than just being able to send texts and phone people, you'd be able to do everything as you walked around. In the same way with social networks, I remember writing about Facebook very early on and it was uh, a space where there wasn't very much in the way of spam. The same was true for Twitter very early on. And the idea that it would become pervasive was a bit strange because why would people do this? You know, we thought it was more something that people who were deeply into technology would be interested in. So yeah, it's one of these things where you can't you can't quite see the see the summit, I guess, until you uh, until you climb up the hill. You know, you don't get a view of the mountain or the forest from close by. You, you have to step back again, and that's always the problem with technology. Some of these things just fritter out. Some of them just, you know, they, they don't actually turn up. So the experience of writing about technology for a long period is one where you see people hype things up enormously and they go to nothing. And then you see people hype things up enormously and they become gigantically. And it's very difficult to tell what the difference is. And I mean, at the beginning, there were predictions that it would all be fabulous, creating social movements and so on. And in fact, in Egypt, that appeared to be a positive result of, of early social media with the uh, overthrow of Mubarak. There was a lot of optimism around in 2011 when you had the Arab Spring and social networks, which were comparatively new. I mean, Facebook was set up in 2004, Twitter was set up in 2006. And you had then in uh, the Middle Eastern countries, many of which were under authoritarian or dictatorial regimes. As they got the internet, they suddenly discovered that there was a, a sort of subversive effect of these social networks, which could then be used to organise, to find people who were similarly disaffected with their rulers. And that did help organisation for the Arab Spring through Facebook and Twitter. So there was a lot of optimism in the West 
about the positive effects that these could uh, that these could have, which to some extent slightly overlooked the fact that you were still overthrowing a regime, which is not an easy thing to do. You have to, you know, there's a theory that it takes about one third of the population to be uh, really disaffected with a regime of whatever stripe to overthrow it. And if you can do that, then you could possibly get the same effects in a democracy if you if you really tried hard at it. There was a lot of um, perhaps willful ignorance about the destabilizing effects that we were actually seeing there because they were overthrowing authoritarian regimes. And we think that's fine. But if you're overthrowing one sort of regime, you can overthrow another. And, and if you're mobilizing all the, the people who are willing to go out and fight against the police in the streets, then you seem to have found quite a powerful force and mobilized it through social networks. And as always, we end with a nice recipe. This one is from Pedro Pena Bastos, the top chef behind Lisbon's Michelin-starred restaurant Cura. This is one of his favorite recipes. Hello, my name is Pedro Pena Bastos, and I'm the head chef of restaurant Cura here at Ritz Four Seasons Lisbon. Cura is based on respect for Portuguese traditions and culture. Today we're going to talk about a very, very special recipe that has a huge meaning for me that's been growing from the last three years since my last restaurant, which is squid. A squid with bergamot, a hazelnut, caviar, and a roasted seaweed butter sauce. The squid must arrive very, very fresh. Uh, it's totally cleaned out until you have that beautiful triangle shape of meat, so we don't discard the heads or the trims, we just set on the side. And with the meat, we just cook it sous vide for about one hour at uh, 56, 57 degrees, depending on the, on the thickness of the, on the squid. And then it's clean again, vacuum pack again, and we basically pile three, four units of those squid-shaped triangles so we can freeze it very quick and then cut it very thin as if it was a pasta, like a tagliatelle. But there's only the part of the dish. So that's the main texture is that, and then we need to use the rest of the squid. So with the squid sack, we, we used to dehydrate, mix it with some olives and garlic, and that paste we just grind into a fine powder, so we use it to season the squid on top like a, like a salt. And with the trims of the heads and the skin, we braise them in very, very uh, caramelized butter with a lot of garlic, onion, uh, ginger, uh, scallions. And then basically we simmer it for about two hours with almost no boiling at all, just very, very little. And then after all the meat of the, those trims are just, just falling apart, we, we strain it and the major process of the sauce, it's now beginning. So we reduce the, the sauce, the, 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 the broth. We reduce until, until it gets very, very concentrated. But it's because it's strained before, it's super cleaned. And after that, we just season with, with sour cream. A la minute, we use fresh juice and salt. That's it. We use lemons in season because it, it gives really more freshness and you don't get that lemony uh, concentrated taste. So it, it must be super fresh. That's basically the main sauce of the dish. So now we have the squid, we have the sauce, and then let's go for the garnish. 
because the squid it's quite intense we need something to balance with it so we use citrus from winter that we we, we preserve the oils by infusing the the, the, the skins on oil and so we, we're using now bergamot oil to season the squid with some lemon juice some salt and some uh, garlic olive oil and then we add in the dish a roasted seaweed butter and what we do is to grind into a thin powder the seaweeds. So we first dehydrate the seaweeds, we grind them, and we mix it with toasted butter. So it actually toasts all at the same time. So you end it up with, with, a, with, a, with a butter that is totally black, almost like dark green, black color, as if it was the squid ink. So it, it will give an extra um, umami, roastness, and also the, the sea taste that the squid doesn't have because it's basically, it's super reduced. And that sea aroma, the freshness, as you get on barnacles or any other seafood, you don't get on the squid. So we compensate it by using that roasted seaweed butter. And then we just garnish it with some hazelnuts, chunks lightly roasted to make, to balance with the notes of the roasted seaweed. It almost doesn't need anything to garnish it. We just decided to go one step further and add a big spoon of caviar. So it will give a nice butterness to the dish. It, it doesn't increase the, the, the sea tastes because, you know, uh, caviar is not from the sea, but all that fishy tastes, it will make the dish even fattier. Basically, we're talking about 20 grams of very thin cut squid with I don't know, 20, 30 grams of sauce. So it's a very, very tiny dish, but super uh, concentrated. So to pair with this uh, dish, the wine I choose is Madrigal from Quinto do Monte Doiro. The grape is Vionier, and it's uh, aged in wood barrels. Hope you, you would like this combination. It's special for me as well. So I hope to see you soon at Cura. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>